Hello, everyone. This is your host, Edo Ninja, and you are now listening to the Storm Connect podcast, published by the King's Eyes Life Network. I talk about gaming topics and animated series of my own interest, like Hunter x Hunter, Ruby, Kingdom Hearts, Persona 5, and so on forward. The goal I aim to accomplish on every episode is to provide insights on these subjects that are usually overlooked to spread awareness and learn more. In this episode, we are going to be discussing the recent chapters of Rooster Teeth's Ruby Volume 7, an animated web show that features anime characteristics where four girls, Ruby, Weiss, Blake, and Yang, and a few other traveler friends went from training to become huntsmen and huntresses to saving the world as they fight off against the creatures of Grimm. If you are not caught up with the Ruby series, I suggest you tune into this podcast at another time, especially Chapter 12 that's only available to Rooster Teeth's first membership subscriptions. Before we get started to the actual podcast episode, I just wanted to take a moment to tell all of you guys that no matter what, appreciate those that are around you and never leave anything onto a bad note. Please let that go. And the reason why I'm saying this in this podcast episode, because there was a terrible accident. You have already heard of this already. Uh, We have lost Kobe Bryant and his daughter, Gianna in a very terrible helicopter crash, along with uh, several other passengers and the pilot as well. And it was so unexpected and just so tragic. I never really took into the interest of basketball or anything close to the sports field like that, but I knew a lot of people that I grew up with. Like, that is one of the names I would hear very often, Kobe Bryant. And just hearing this, it was a total shock. I genuinely wanted to believe that this was a nightmare, but... My heart and condolences goes out to the families of those that have fallen and such and to the dear loved ones. And all we can do is that we can press on forward and to never forget the legacy that they left. Trust me when I say this, but the people that we have lost and to those that we are with right now, the last thing that they want to see you personally is for you to be down. And that's why they're there to help you and support you until you are back up with your own two feet. Also, know that whoever is around you and those that you may have lost, I can't speak for everyone, obviously, but just know that no matter what, they want to see you smile and they're going to smile with you when you both can stand together. And that is all that you need. So, but I just wanted to say that just to give a little bit of a uh, moment for Kobe and those that have died in that terrible accident and to give that reminder to other people. <sighs> Alrighty. It's all good. Now let's take a little bit of a step back and go back to the podcast real quick. Let's go back to this whole Ruby discussion for this podcast. Alrighty. So uh, in this podcast, we're going to be reviewing of chapters 10 through 12 and uh, the predictions of chapter 13, the finale of Ruby volume 7. So, with that being said, let's just start off with chapter 10. So, the setting has been made, and everyone is acting. The one thing I did not expect for it to happen was Ironwood telling the Kingdom of Atlas about Salem. I suppose it was a good idea that Robin Hill was with Ironwood, using her semblance in order to ensure that whatever Ironwood is saying, he's telling the whole truth. It simply caught me off guard because everyone in Mantle? does not believe in Ironwood and whatever the hell that he says or what he does and such because everything that they were doing on their own without Ironwood causing anything or even doing anything, they still found a way to blame it onto him. And I was just here like, like, yeah, the heating grid, it was shut off, but 
how do you explain that it's Ironwood's fault? You know? Like, who knows what could have happened? And instead of like, hey, maybe it's an outage or something is going on. No. The first thing that they do is blame it on Ironwood. Like, obviously, I would understand the concern of the heating grid being shut off and, you know, panicking about that. But instead of playing it smart, no, remembering that you guys have a grim problem, you know, you guys would play it the smart way and just stay calm, bound together and such, figure out a way of how to actually solve the problem rather than blaming it onto somebody else who we don't even know if there's a confirmation on that or not. No. You're just going to sit there, cause an actual ruckus fire in Mantle, and then blame it on somebody who didn't even say anything just yet. We don't even know what the situation was going on and such, and it, it, it was just so hard to figure out, so it's like, what the fuck? The only other thing that I would say about this is that the city has suffered through enough. They're so used to giving so much praise to someone and so much blame onto somebody else. They really don't know how to handle themselves in a situation like that. They are just super dependent onto the leaders or basically the high respected public figures. But I want to bring this up real quick, okay? The Kingdom of Atlas, they're known to have so much high and mighty praise and especially for its military force. And even though like, yeah, there's a lot of controversial things going on, a lot of people still believe that the Kingdom of Atlas is the greatest kingdom of remnant. If that's true, you would think that Atlas would do at least something for the citizens, you know? But here they are, suffering and hoping to God that they survive through this grim attack and whatever is going on with Salem's forces and so on forward. It's pretty much the military, Ironwood, and the citizens of Mantle and Atlas. Their logic just... it's completely nonsense. There's a lot of backwards logic that they use and they say, but when it comes to other problems, they just have that habit of blaming onto somebody else or whatever, and they just go by to what they think is right. But that's just something I want to share out there for about Ironwood telling the Kingdom of Atlas about Salem. But the thing is the fact that because of that, everything is happening so quick now. So it's like, alright, yeah, like now we're here at the battle zone, like this is the final battle that's pretty much at the climax of the volume. But, that is super big. I didn't expect it so soon. But on the bright side, it actually worked out well. They just magically believed that Ironwood was this great, amazing headmaster of Atlas. Like, he always have and always will be. Because that's how in the way they praised him. And they're not going to fall into Salem's trap. Or so we thought. But we're going to keep moving forward with this, right? So, next we see a conversation between Cinder and Neo of what their plan is going to be about getting the relic and, well, to what they want, just how they discussed from the previous volume. So that conversation, it was only like a pretty much a rehash of the new updated information about their whereabouts and so on forward. But there were two highlights of that scene that I found very interesting that was pretty new to me. I do understand from based on the previous volume and with this conversation here, Salem wanted to target Vacuo next after Haven. But because that failed and everyone just happens to be at Atlas because that was like pretty much the quote unquote safest kingdom of the world right now, uh, Cinder mentioned that the timeline has changed. When I first heard this, I didn't think that line had that much of a significance, you know? I thought it was just the simple of getting the relics in a certain order and, like, what's the easiest and what's going to be the hardest and planning out for the school's destruction. And then Salem achieves to what she wants at the end of the day. 
I didn't think it was just that big, but oh my, there is a lot more than really meets the eye that we basically forgot to consider, which it shows that in the next episode, and we'll talk about that when we get there. So the other thing that I thought that was pretty interesting that happened in the scene was the fact that Neo was pretty surprised about what Cinder said before she left to go claim the power of the Winter Maiden. I was pretty sure that Neo already had the idea of how the Maidens work, the relics and everything else that goes behind of Salem's plan. And it just seems like that she really doesn't care unless she somehow avenges her lost master, Roman Torchwick. So I just wonder here real quick of what is Neo being concerned over with Cinder's plan to put Ironwood to a spot besides, again, claiming the power of the Winter Maiden. With her specifically mentioning Ironwood like that, she was just like, wait, what? What the fuck are you gonna do? <laughs> it does put to a question here as to how far is Neo willing to go just to get revenge. I really hope they do not kill her off this volume because there's so much potential that they could bring out of Neo. She is mute, and she is seeking revenge for her master that was killed in Volume 3. So, there's so much that they could do with that, and I hope they take their time to explore her character and really put her character to its peak rather than just wasting it and then just killing her off because they have nothing else for her to do. So let's hope for the best for our favorite ice cream girl, Neapolitan. So let's return quickly to the City of Mantle. There has been some very little discussions regarding Ruby using her silver eyes against the Grimm, so I want to talk about that real quick. Also, shout out to the composer Alex Abraham for making the arrangements of Indomitable and Red Like Roses playing in the background during the scenes that were playing. That was really well, beautifully played. I enjoyed it a lot for that scene. So in that scene, the power of her silver eyes, they failed her. So I'm glad she relied on skill and her quick wittedness rather than just using a cheap skill that she was born with. <laughs> Pardon me. But anywho, I do believe that she needs to harness that gift of hers that she has though, but I think this is not the time for it. So hopefully there will be a balance with ruby rose's skills and her silver eyes there will be like a balance between those two so she can basically live up to what maria calavera once did do not abuse your powers always use them wisely now this part this is what i waited for basically at the end of the chapter at least when ironwood announced to the general public about amity arena tower being available to launch to re-establish global communications that was obviously bait for Watts to come through and sabotage that plan, even though it was actually a trap. Not really sure how Watts didn't get the idea, especially the fact that the Amity was left unguarded. I don't know, it's just the way how Ironwood would worded that, it was actually pretty strange. But, I mean, either way, it was a fight to the death as to having control of that tower, I suppose. So the stage has been set of the battle between Watts and Ironwood. I could not help but to bring up this comparison real quick. Ironwood, the headmaster of Atlas, and is also in charge of the military and anything that goes into the government of that kingdom specifically. Watts, someone who is supposedly believed to be dead at some point, but had a high status in Atlas due to his talent or the type of influence that he had before. And it's also entertaining the idea of Salem's quote unquote revolution. This right here, if you have not watched this anime called K Return of Kings, this is a strong parallel towards the Blue King Reishi Munakata and the Grey King Sego Otori. Now the stories between the two may be different, but the roles are respectively the same. 
the two men that are colored in blue regarding with order they are putting their lives on the line in order to stop this revolution that the enemies are trying to create and by revolution i mean destruction now for the two men that are colored in gray in a way they are tragic characters that have lost their ways to the point to where they have guided themselves to such horrendous acts and again were also believed to be dead at one point now, I'm not saying that that might have been an inspiration since K Return of Kings they did it first or anything, but I just thought it was like really cool to see that type of parallel again. If there's one thing that I have to compliment Kirby that they're doing on right now, it's definitely their fight setups. Speaking of fight setups, before we go on to chapter 11, I forgot actually this one thing. Clover, Robin Hill, Crow versus Tyrion. Now I understand why Crow and Robin Hill have been assigned for Tyrion. Clover? At first, it just looked like he was just there for insurance, but he mentions that Robin is not the only one that has a grudge, because Clover seems to also have a grudge with Tyrion. So it's like, huh, what do you have against him? It wasn't really exactly clear, as I thought the only thing that I could see that would be actually possible for Clover to have a grudge against Tyrion was the report that they pulled up on Tyrion Kalos. In the report, it stated that Piccolo was the one that was insisting that they bring in more units to guarding the prisoner. He was removed from the transport team, but still was killed eventually in time after the transportation for Tyrion failed. So unless there's an unclear explanation as to why Clover has a grudge against Tyrion, I can only assume that Clover has only hold that grudge due to the fact of people that were lost during that tragic transportation incident. But with that being said, seeing all of this is great, right? Yeah, with all this being said, I'm not so sure what exactly could go wrong, but we got there. Speaking of wrong, before we talk about chapter 11, let's talk about this real quick, all right? You may have heard of few words about this subject or so, but Australia, right? Do you know the catastrophic damage that the wildfires have caused? The fires in Australia are devastating and the crisis is still ongoing. More than 10 million hectares have been burnt and this number continues to climb. That's the equivalent of 40% of the entire UK. Lives, homes, and an estimated 1.25 billion animals have been affected, including 30% of the entire koala population in mid-north coast of New South Wales. These catastrophic megafires are worsening the extinction crisis we're already facing. Just think about that. And please, if you can, and if you want to learn more of how you can do your part, you can check it out at support.wwf.org.uk. The link to this will be provided into the show page as well. Whew. Alrighty, let's rewind back to the podcast real quick. Now, chapter 10 has been reviewed. Now let's dissect it to chapter 11. This chapter was spectacular in many ways, starting off with that amazing gunfight. I have not seen a spectacular gunfight like that in a while. Plus, seeing a gunfight like that, it isn't really common for Ruby to showcase something like that, you know? You usually see Huntsmen and Huntresses using their creative, stylish weapons that they have designed ever since for god knows how long. And you know, that's cool and all, right? Like, I appreciate the creativity of that though, but a gunfight is not something that I would really be interested in immediately. But seeing that of how they showcase that, especially with the concept of dust, oh my god, that was just wow. During that fight though, Watts mentions that Ironwood chose Pietro over Watts. 
I don't know. I was really hoping that they would dive a little bit more into that as to why Watts turned out to the way that he did because we only got certain hints. All we know is that he was disgraced and whatever ideas that he had, it just no longer was approved even though Ironwood was like, well, I gave you what you want and I don't know what else you want from me. I'm hoping they continue to dive into this more, either Pietro or Watts somehow because I don't know if Watts is truly dead. Like at the end of that fight scene, it just, we didn't see a body because... I would really put that man all the way to, like, a volcano. So, but we didn't see him fall or anything like that. So, nobody, no death, we don't know anything. We only have so little facts, but there's a lot to tell within that story with just those little facts. But if we have a proper baseline of it as to why Watt started to follow Salem, then at least that would be nice. And as that scene ended... Ironwood mentions that he is willing to do whatever it takes and to sacrifice as well in order to stop Salem. And Watts was like, oh, I hope you do. I seriously hope that you do. And at first I was like, okay, I think this guy is just crazy. Just batshit crazy. All due to the fact that he just wants his creations and his intelligence to be appreciated. But as it turns out, the line that Watts delivered in that scene, well, that definitely shifted the tune of this episode big time. Like, that's the thing. Like, we stopped Tyrion and we stopped Watts, but, like, there's Cinder and Neo. And I thought that's, like, the only thing they need to take care of. And it wouldn't be that so bad, right? But, no, I, I guess I was wrong. <laughs> All it took was for Ironwood to see the Black Queen chess piece. Like, yeah, obviously, like, we know that that's a sign that Salem is there. Like, that shit is scary as fuck, but god damn. What's even crazier is that this is all of a coincidence, too. Seeing the Black Queen again as a traumatic experience, it eats away his humanity, and I guess this time it ate all of it. With that little time that they have, I would just genuinely thought that starting a fight with Team Ruby about trust and such, just because that he got freaked out of what he saw in his office, would be a great idea. When you gotta evacuate citizens from mantle to your fucking kingdom like dude what are you doing so now that we're talking about this part i need to get on to ironwood's case even further because i'm not done here yet i'm not done so if you have been here for my ruby podcast since day one you would know that i talk a lot of shit about ironwood i genuinely think that he is one of the biggest dumbasses in the entire rubyverse right but for some reason, even when he has those moments, he is actually not a bad character in Volume 7. There's something this side of, there's this side of Ironwood that just makes me, for some reason, like him. And it's just like, wow, even though, like, he's a dumbass, he's still somewhat of a character that I can like because you could actually see that happening. I don't know, that's just from my perspective. There's just something about this ironwood that just makes me go like oh wow this guy is just tired like he's not just straight up being a dumbass anymore he is just tired and you know he's going through a lot through his head and doing what he thinks is right because it's so hard to take on when you are the headmaster the leader of everything in your entire kingdom it definitely feels different as to how he originally was in the previous volumes and even with the panicking that he was having, he actually had character development. Like, it was a big step forward that he needed to trust his people, that everything is going to be okay. He was doing so good. He was doing ridiculously good. I love this. Like, I'm like, yes, you are the dumbass that's actually doing something right for your fucking people. Like, now you're taking the steps forward that you should have from the start. And all because that you let your trauma eat you, you're gonna sit here and say, 
fuck you to your own people that tried to help you for your own sake and fuck over everyone that's going to die in Mantle. Good job. That looks... That puts a great look on you. I just can't fathom from that. I generally thought that Ironwood, he's never made any type of character development, but just this, he took two steps, like, forward, and then ten steps back. Like, how do you do that in the short span of two episodes? I... This just doesn't sit right with me. Like, okay, if Ironwood was not going to move forward, fine. But what was the point of all of that? Like, I'm sorry, but it's just like... If you're going to make this character develop for him all just for it to be reverted, and even to make it worse, like... Ah! Oh my god, like, no! <laughs> and this was the worst timing for it too, though. It's perfect, but I don't know. It just makes me feel so conflicted. I'm just like, I don't know. Like, honestly, like... If this is the type of reaction that you wanted to get out of me, oh yeah, it fucking worked. <laughs> so, what is my stance on Ironwood, you may ask? Well, he is not bad, but now I'm just conflicted now that this type of character development or devolvement happened. I don't even know what to call this anymore. This is just... Ah! It's just... It brings so much frustration because, like, I want to like Ironwood, especially to how he was portrayed in Volume 7, but oh my god, I, I don't know what to think. It's so hard for me to, like process all of this you know it's hard to have that confidence that strength and to stand up against a terrible ancient being that existed for god knows how long but that's why you have to trust your huntsmen the people that you train the people that are your allies because your citizens in your kingdom are depending on you for their survival like fuck i agree with vice like are you that fucking serious to question about who the fuck told Robin about the global communications project? Like, dude, she's always been on your side. What do you What do you mean that you did not know that? You fucking knew that. She's not the fucking hero of Mantle for nothing. How in the fuck are you going to sit here and tell me that she is questionable at best when she was doing everything in her power to protect her people to ensure that her people feel safe? She is known to be a fucking criminal in your own eyes because she was looking out for her own people's best interests. You are focusing on something else. You're on something which, to a degree, I understand. For the Amity Tower project, I know that. But for her people, come on. How is that questionable? How are you going to look me straight in the eyes, making that face, and tell me here seriously that Robin is questionable and you didn't know that for sure? Get out of here. What's crazy is the fact that he also admitted that he needs Robin Hill for Mantle to cooperate other than pretty much talking to her and telling the truth, you know? Like, what the fuck? Because the people there, they don't trust Ironwood and they have every right so not to trust him because he just won't say shit, understandably so, from both parties. It's a very conflicting situation. But no, now you're just going to start this shit fest. <sighs> I'm so done with this character. So... A little quick shout out to Salem gladly interrupting that argument between Team Ruby and Ironwood just for her to come in and be like, oh yeah, by the way, guys, I'm coming. Now the shout out has been put there. We're going to talk about this beautiful scene. That scene was so flawless. Like, I actually was feeling the tension and the dreadfulness in that scene. Like, holy fuck. Hats off to Kruby for making this happen. It was so powerful. I feel like I was actually there. And what I loved more is the fact that she wasn't even trying to be intimidating. All she said that, yeah, they were never meant to win anyway because they already said the things in stone for me. So now the stage has been set. Now it's my turn. 
So I guess this is the part where the timeline has changed. I guess this is where the big impact of this was actually coming from. This crazy old woman is going all out and pretty much sat here and told us it's either you surrender the relics or it's war. And this time I'm going to come there and get it personally myself. Which I guess it makes sense because her followers keeps failing her, so she might as well do things for herself and have the people that are over there in Atlas or wherever kingdom, they do the little work and she does all of it since nobody's reliable to her in her own eyes, I suppose. And goodness gracious, like, because she's lived so long, she knows how to get to people's emotions that easily. And especially how to draw fear out of them. And the way that she was consoling Ironwood like that, I was like, oh my god, you are, like, trying to be the mother of all people going like, yeah, just accept your fate, and I promise I can make this end quick. And they do put on this horror effect. Like, again, I feel like I'm watching a horror movie sometimes whenever I'm watching Ruby. That's how dark that they went for this web show. I'm genuinely surprised. And when Ruby was doing her usual protagonist speech, it didn't feel like, you know, like, yes, like, we're gonna stop you. We're gonna take you down. I don't know, just something about Ruby talking with the percussion in the background, the instruments, like, making it sound even more horrific. I don't know, there was just something that even made it, like, scary that it was coming from Ruby. I was like, okay, whoa, I need you guys to calm down real quick. This is getting too much for me. But the one thing that I found really odd about this episode, which I... I couldn't help but to laugh a little bit, but, like, you know, at first, like, it was, like, a freakout, but then, like, I just kind of laughed about it. There has been some secret conspiracy theories regarding with Summer Rose as to what happened to her, and obviously knowing the fact that she knows about Salem, we just don't know if Salem killed her, we don't know if it was actually just a mission, she just never came back, we just don't know what happened to her. But I think we can start putting those conspiracy theories to rest because Salem just had to say, Yo mama, pulled out that yo mama card to Ruby, and then she just started crying like a little baby. It's just thinking about it, I just... I can only laugh because it's just how funny it was, though. But now we have the confirmation that Salem must have at least something to do with Summer Rose's cause of quote-unquote death. And even after Salem making her formal greeting, the tensions keep rising. It doesn't stop from there. Salem's on her way and pretty much the alarms that approaches the coast of the kingdom, yeah, they're down now. The actions that Ironwood is taking for this, some of it I do agree, but not all of it. The Relic of Knowledge, I don't feel like that should have been entrusted to Team Ruby because that could potentially be lost. I felt like that should have been locked up as well. It's better to be safe than sorry. As for Winter Schneed claiming the power of the Winter Maiden, I'm not exactly happy about it, but I mean, because the Cinder is there, they might as well just in case the Cinder eventually finds the Winter Maiden and she takes her power. So I think it would have been wiser that Winter gets it first before Cinder does, but oh, again, that's tea. As for abandoning Mantle, the Amity Project, and for arresting Team Ruby and whoever came with them, that I don't agree with. And because of that, everyone now knows the truth of Salem. Well, mostly Ironwood, he got the whole story, so it's just like, you're making that decision even though you know Salem's, like, best trait is to divide humanity. So, you're giving into that play, like, why are you still entertaining this idea? And the fact that he doesn't give a fuck that Mantle dies off from this larger force that's coming? Wow. I understand from Vine's perspective, like, you know, you can't focus on a single battle when you have pretty much a war coming right at your hands. But it's like, at least save your people. Like, that's just not fair to them. Like, now at that point, you're deciding for their lives, and that's not right. 
This whole thing with this distrust is being taken to a whole new level. You must arrest the huntsman that you have to trust eventually. You need more numbers in huntsmen and huntresses to fight off against Salem. And you're overcomplicating the problem. And now you're making it harder for yourself that way. He even got so low that he had to break off the local communications among the kingdom of Atlas. Like, dude, that is a stupid idea. Like, now, to anyone that is dying, that's gonna be on your hands. But all because that you're pretty much taking this gamble just to fight off against Salem. Good luck, dude. Speaking of good luck, Oscar goes missing yet again. Meaning, he's probably having a fun time with the ice cream girl, and now Team Junior has to go save his ass. The good thing is that at least Ruby was able to relay the message about what Ironwood plans to do, especially with declaring martial law. I forgot to add in that fact, but yeah, that man is declaring martial law so that nobody could say shit to him. So, that means, yep, that kingdom is fucked, and the kingdom of Atlas, that shit is falling down to the ground. That staff is gonna get out of its vault, and that kingdom is going to fall. I can see this now happening. But, besides that, yes, Ruby, she relates the information to everybody as much as possible before Ironwood cuts off everybody. And, yeah, Crow knows, uh, Team Junior knows, and uh, Winter and Penny knows, so, like... Now everyone that's like part of that group chat, like they already know what's going on. So everyone's in panic and that's where we have to transition to episode 12 over here. So this entire volume, the Aesops, they pretty much gave the entire impression that they're all about orders and such. They never have a mind of their own, uh, their opinion, like whatever Ironwood says, that's what they have to swarm by no matter what. Even if they disagree with them, they just go by with it no matter what. No question, they go by it. And that's a scary mentality. Now... I waited so long to talk about this character. I'm not going to go too much into it because I'm going to save that especially for the end though. But I'm going to introduce this specifically. Clover. The good luck charm has to bring in the bad luck charm, Crow. And without questioning it, like he was willing to even detain Crow on the site since we're, they're obviously in the same airship. So of course, Robin was not having any of that shit. Like, yeah, I would feel threatened if someone that's supposed to be saving Mantle has to be arrested here because of Ironwood's inhumane plan. Having the weapon ready is also something that I feel is justified. But because there's a lot of what the fuck's going on, instead of questioning it and actually trying to be reasonable about this, I feel like they should have at least take Tyrion into custody because that's like the first and foremost, like, biggest threat that's upon them right now compared to Crow when there's just been a question of trust. That's just it. Tyrion is a serial killer. Crow even tried to negotiate with this. I'm like, hey, we're almost at Atlas. Let's just talk to him and let's see what's going on and then we can go from there peacefully as possible. But oh my god, I love Robin Hill, but that pretty much gave Clover as a justified reason to fight back and to actually have them detained. Well, mostly just Crow, not Robin. They're fighting on that airship that pretty much led them to that crash. There's a lot more that I really want to say about this, but I, again, I'm going to save that for the end because that's where most of the episode like of this scene happens at the end. So... I'm going to pause right there, and we're going to talk about Penny, Winter, and Team Ruby, and the Aesops real quick. You know, for someone that's trying to understand human emotions due to being a robot, I feel like Penny has come a long way from basically the start of the Ruby series to how she is now. She's starting to feel more human than ever before. And I'm going to say this again, Pietro should be proud. Her opinions are starting to feel a bit more real than just going by the facts, and it's bothering her so much. Like, she's even frustrated about this. She's like, I don't even see the good in any of this. I felt that shit so hard. 
The only theory that I have, I don't know if it's just how the way Pietro built her, but maybe giving him his, uh, giving her his aura is what made her feel that type of way to understand human emotions a bit more, because it takes a lot to process that. Maybe aura is what makes her feel even more human, because obviously, like, it's a living, you know, it has to be with living humans like that. I see that that could have been the key to everything of how Penny has made her progress. And I love this cute growth that she's having with Winter, you know? Someone who's trying to repress her emotions, while the one who is trying to understand emotions and feel the way that humans do. And I'm not saying that this is a bad thing between that Winter has to learn from Penny and vice versa. Like, this is so good. Winter cannot be shutting down like that without even question. It's so bad. And I'm, like, so happy to see that Penny is even showing and, like, even questioning that, like, don't think that this is a good thing and such. Like, you know, like, your personal feelings, they do matter. It's so scary what the military can teach you, you know? And at least later that winter, she acknowledges that. I'm like, yes, our personal feelings, they do matter. It just, it makes them remind us that it makes us humans and such. Like, I'm glad that she at least acknowledges that, though. It's just that she shouldn't be shutting it down as much. And it looks like Penny was, like, starting to begin to understand why Winter's acting the way that she does. Especially when they were at the Schnee Mansion. And I hope they make it out of this alive and well as great friends because they're going up against Cinder now as we expected for her to claim the power of the Winter Maiden, you know? So here's a couple things that could happen here. Winter dies and somehow, magically somehow, Penny becomes the Winter Maiden and that's how she becomes a real human being rather than just being a robot girl. Two, they both die and Cinder gets the Winter Maiden's powers and everyone is just fucked. See... Winter does get the Winter Maiden powers, and she goes up against Cinder with the better chances of winning. Or, my last option, Winter dies right in front of Weiss, and then she becomes the Winter Maiden. So, I don't know, there's so much things that could go out of this, like, it's so crazy, and I'm just so scared because it's just those two, and we don't even know if those two are enough to go up against Cinder. Both of them have come a long way, and I definitely do not want this to end now, though. If it does, oh god, again, my heart is going to break, and it's definitely going to be Volume 3 vibes all over again. The death, the death flags, they keep coming, and it's not stopping there. So that's all there really is to say about those two. Now we can talk about with Team Ruby facing against the Aesops. Now what's interesting is that the Aesops, they kind of have a different dynamic. Marrow and Vine, they want to have a peaceful resolution to this, even though they still have to reset, uh, Team Ruby has to still surrender at the end of the day. And Harriet and Elm, they just want to go all out. And it looks like it really got them heated. I don't know why those two got super heated over that though, but Jesus Christ, like they really consider them traitors like that. Those two don't even care if they have to shed blood, like that's how serious they were. Now let's talk about their exchanges real quick. Harriet goes over here, like, flocking the fact that, oh, yeah, we're the best huntsmen. Like, we're the real shit. You can't fuck with us. We're the best in the kingdom. You can't touch us. And Ruby over there, like, this is the one time, like, I will give her credit. Like, she actually, like, snapped back. She clapped back real good. She was like, oh, yeah, well, you were, but then you trained us. I'm just glad she did not give that type of, like, protagonist speech. Like, you know, like, yeah, we're gonna get through you because the power of friendship type of bullshit. Like, no. Like, she was like, yeah, no. Actually, you trained us, so therefore, we know your weaknesses and we know how to handle you guys and we've gotten better fighting skills. So let's kick your asses real quick. And I suppose that's what set them off to begin with. And Elm over here getting really triggered the fact that Yang pretty much made an immature remark on towards them. Like, yeah, like, hearing it from Yang, it just sounded so immature, but the fact that it got to Elm is just like, wow look who's the amateur one now that's crazy now i this 
is the second most hated character in the Aesop's team, Marrow. He annoys me so much. Like, this is the guy that, like, wanted to, like, not fight, but it's like, if he has to, he has to. But this man over here is fighting Weiss, and he decided to pull the Schnee card, even though, like, Weiss has openly expressed that she does not like her family except for Winter. She's like, oh, well, you Schnees get what you wanted, so it's time to let this go. I was like, really, dude? You're stooping that low? Oh, come on. Come on, dude. They always referred to Team Ruby as kids and children, but it's just like, if you really think about it, because that they always followed orders, they're actually the ones that are, they're acting like kids here. They're the immature ones. It's like, they've grown so much. Like, look at what you are. That's sad. You have absolutely no right to call someone childish when you get heated in the moment for such immature remarks just like that. What's even crazier is the fact I don't see Team Ruby always making those type of immature remarks. So the fact that they did that in this specific scene there, it's like, whoa, that says a lot about their class. The Aesops were so emotionally invested into it, it costed them their fighting skills to be super sloppy and well, they lost the fight. That's just how it went. The battle choreography was really good. I enjoyed every moment of that. But whatever that that was being said is the fact that they were making super irrational decisions. Like, they don't realize of how many advantages they could have had, how much of the situations they could have taken advantage out of. It just really shows that they're really nothing without Clover. Oh, yeah. Shout out to the grandparents for showing up, Pietro and Maria. That was just perfect timing. Odd timing as the fight ends and they talk about the plan and they're like, well, how do we end then? They come through, and Maria is just, like, the one that's, like, narrating Team Ruby at this point. The, the show of Ruby, actually. She's like, okay, and this is the part where they're gonna ask us for help. <laughs> oh, that kills me. I feel like she knows the end to the story of Ruby. I don't know why, but it's just, like, the way how she is, she is such a great character. I love her so much. And I know there were evacuations going around with Mantle and Atlas going on. Maybe it was put to a halt now, but I'm just here wondering, how in the hell did they get inside of the school? Maria and Pietro were wilding. That, that's just crazy to even see that they even made it to the top. I'm telling you, shit like that, they get away with everything. Though, it is funny, I will admit. Okay, so now we're going to have a little small talk about Team Junior. And then we're going to talk about the rest of the events of Transpired with Clover, Crow, and Robin. So Team Junior, like, you know, they're looking for Oscar, and it, not even the second, like, Oscar randomly shows up, and I already knew in my mind, I'm like, okay, that's definitely Neo, there's no way, because Oscar would usually say something before, like, he even shows up on screen or somewhere else where the characters can see them, and Neo gets fucked up, like, this man was just like, no, and it looks, Oscar looks so beat up, and he punches Neo, and just judging by the way that he looks, it's like, was there a fight off screen? Like, goddamn, how much hell did he, was he already put through? It gives me that flashback to where last season, the last volume, he went missing for whatever reason, probably, like, depression. Like, we thought, like, he was depressed or whatever, and, you know, he had his self-reflection moment, and then he went to go shopping for new clothes. <laughs> I... I need this off-screen stuff to stop happiness to Oscar. Like, I thought, like, they were done with that as soon as I saw his conversation with Ironwood, though. But, like, no. W why did this happen again? <laughs> and how did you let this girl take the relic from you? Like, the fact that she had it at a certain point and almost made a run for it. How? Now, because we're on pretty much the horizon of the last chapter for next week, I don't feel like the fight between Team Junior and... Neo is going to be that long, which we won't have much time to dive into her character unless the last chapter is like an hour long, maybe. <laughs> so 
Who knows? And also, because that we're here, I definitely do not see Oscar unlocking his semblance at all. There's not really that much for me to say beyond this point with Team Junior and Neo. So, let's just finally wrap this up with this amazing end of Chapter 12 of Ruby. Crow, Clover, Robin, and Tyrion. And rip those pilots, unfortunately. The ship has crashed because those motherfuckers decided to fight. They were so smart to pick a fight there. And that could potentially cause for Tyrion to escape. And guess what? I was right! Robin Hill is out of commission. She is knocked the fuck out. And Tyrion, well, he was able to pretty much be sneaky and, well, untangle himself up. And guess what? He's now free and okay. But what makes this worse is because that they're in that situation, before they, they even check around with any survivors and such and people around them, Clover noticed that Robin needs help. She needs to be seen immediately, just in case. And before they even prioritized Robin Hill's safety and getting Tyrion into custody and making sure that he is still detained and, you know, having his arms tied up and his tail, no. He's just over there like, okay, Crow, I have to tie you up, so if you're not going to let me do that peacefully, well, then Robin's not going to get help at all. Like, why would you make that type of deal? Like, what the fuck's wrong with you? So because of that, Clover is wanting to waste time all because of the order that he's been given by Ironwood. And again, Tyrion is free and his aura is recharged back up. Guess what? Now he wishes to entertain the fight. Clover sees that Tyrion is free. And instead of helping Crow to take him down again, no, he still goes after Crow. Like, what the fuck? I'm pretty sure Salem's forces are much more of a higher priority than getting someone, like, just a recency update on a mission to take someone as your ally in custody. Get out. And because that Clover wanted to make things harder for himself, he tries to take on Crow and Tyrion at the same time. Like, how... You're going up against somebody who's a great huntsman and the other one is a great serial killer. Why would you attempt to take them both on when you could have just teamed up with your ally, even though he's in question right now, to take down the serial killer and bring him in? Crow didn't even want to team up with Tyrion like that, you know? And the thing is the fact that this was unwanted teamwork. Like, some people are saying that Crow was willing to team up with Tyrion just to take him down so they could finish their score. I highly disagree with that. It's like Crow, he didn't make that choice. It's like the fact the choice was, like, made for him because... It was a really fucked situation. So I'm about to make a weird analogy here, right? For those of you in my, that are in my Discord server and are listening to this podcast, you know what I'm about to say here. So in Super Smash Bros. Uh, Ultimate, right? <laughs> I usually have free-for-all nights in my server among with other regular members here and there, right? So if you don't know this about me already, I'm a Robin main and most of the people that are regulars in my Discord server, they hate my Robin with a genuine passion. They hate Robin so much that they actually have tried to team up against me. But that usually never works, right? They even try to strategize of how to take me down. And i actually given him a couple tips as to how to take me down. But they think that I'm only saying that so I get the victory at the end of the day. But no, I say this is because that they keep fucking up over their teamwork. They want to have revenge against with one another. And it just happens because like sometimes they even go after each other. But it's not even intentional. So think of me as Robin in the Rubyverse, I'm Tyrion. And then my two regulars, they're Crow and Clover. Those two want to settle the score because they want to take me down for the quote-unquote foul stuff that I have done to them in Smash. But they just got done dirty at that moment. So because of that, 
they're not going to take a stand for it and they want to take them down first before taking me down. And I'm just only there interfering with the fight here and there. So I don't make any teamwork, but I'm interfering because I just think it's funny. So I'm not I'm not on anybody's side. So it's unintentional teamwork like that, you know? It may not be the exact same situation that way, but like, you know, because if they were going against one another and such, I decided to help out for their own cause, quote unquote, their own cause. And even though they try to take me down, yeah, that doesn't work. I just come out as the victor of the battle. And that's exactly what happened here in this situation. Clover got knocked out because of unwanted teamwork. And guess what? He got what he earned, which is getting killed. So going back to the scene here real quick, Clover, he got what he deserved. This is what he earned. He followed orders, even though that really was not going to help. Instead of taking a reasonable route, even though it may not be reasonable in the law of order in that situation oh yeah there has to be some type of bending around will here especially that they're at the brink of war so yeah no it, it got him killed his blind faith is what bested him and what's even worse is the fact that Tyrion used crow's weapon to kill him and crow takes the blame for it and not Tyrion as he escapes and because of there is an update for crow being wanted to be taken into custody they're going to prioritize that no matter what now, here's the thing, right? One of the Aesop's dying, that was no surprise to me. And there was a lot of death flags collecting for Clover in that matter, especially to how close that he was getting to Crow. And even though it did look suspicious at one point, it just kind of really showed whose charm was, well, stronger in that sense, you know? I don't really care that much for Clover dying. It's just the impact that it had on Crow made me feel some type of way. I'm not gonna lie. Clover was really trying to have Crow look at a different point of view of things, especially in life and as to how he acts and such. So just seeing the fact that how he was dying and how Crow was taking it, it hit too hard. Crow's bad luck charm goes so far it even causes someone life that way sometimes, you know? And again, even though Clover was a complete dumbass for it, this still kind of hit different because of the character developments between the two. Crow even has that resolve to ensure that Ironwood takes the fall. Because his orders is what got Clover killed, in a way. Think about it. Let's look past the stupidity right there. That's how he genuinely felt, is the blind faith onto Ironwood that way. Ironwood went to an inhumane path to the point where it got one of his own best huntsmen killed. One of his most loyal, as a matter of fact, even though he felt like he had a true friendship with Crow. And I genuinely feel so sorry for Crow because all for his entire life was misfortune. Bringing misfortune upon with other people and the misfortune is brought upon to him, which equals a lot of people dying. It showed that during the Haven arc. So I won't lie here, even though I dislike the character that very much, I didn't feel satisfied for him to die as of like that. It's just how things turned out in that small span of that 18 minute chapter. Oh God, that made me feel some type of way. It's conflicting emotions. And it's just like, I don't feel good about it. Cause like, you know what? I will be with Crow on this one. There should be some justice for his fallen friend. Now, with all that being said, we have one chapter left before the volume concludes. Now, because some of the chapters were pretty small, I feel like the last chapter, hopefully, it should be around the 30-minute mark. There's many battles that are going on and the safety of the relic and if Ironwood is actually going to get the relic before they do 
Or is Salem going to arrive at that time? Or what's going to happen? Is Watts actually dead or alive? But let's say it doesn't go to that 30 minute mark. If that were to be the case, I feel like this volume is going to conclude with potential fights that are going to be left as a cliffhanger and we won't be able to see those fights until the beginning of volume 8. Like say for example, Cinder kills Winter right in front of Weiss's eyes, then most likely there's going to be a fight between Penny, Weiss, and Cinder and possibly Ruby as well on top of that. So... And we won't see that until the next chapter. So hopefully they can cram this all into that small time crunch unless they have the idea of making it very long because so much has happened. So much is going on. I don't know if putting it to another volume would be the correct way to end this volume. I could be wrong, but all I'm going to say is I have a strong feeling this volume is not going to end on a happy note. Crow being framed, Team Ruby, Team Junior, Neo, Ironwood... Salem, oh god, there is so much that is happening all at once. I will be posting a thread about my reaction towards the chapter 13 on my personal Twitter. So if you're not following at HD on my Twitter, be sure to follow that and you can see my reaction first at hand for this Saturday coming up. And that will be all for the podcast episode. If you are listening to this show on Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave a five-star rating if you enjoyed the podcast. Hit up the StormConnect Twitter at StormConnectEN or other platforms this podcast is on for feedback on the show. This is Seno Ninja, and I'll see you guys next Wednesday.